Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is David Kessler. David Kessler is the world's foremost expert on grief and loss. His experience with thousands of people on the edge of life and death has taught him secrets to living a happy and fulfilled life even after life's tragedies. David is the founder of Grief.com, which has over 5 million visits yearly from people in 167 countries. He's the author of six books, including the new best-selling book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. He's also co-authored two books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, including a book on grief and grieving, which updated her five stages for grief. David comes at this conversation of understanding grief, loss, and finding meaning, not just as an expert who's worked with other people's journey through grief, but as someone who has deeply experienced his own loss and shares about it and the meaning-making process he went through and ultimately how making meaning has so much to do with grieving fully and living fully and having and maintaining an ongoing evolving relationship with those who have died. Here's my illuminating conversation with David Kessler. I'm absolutely thrilled, David, to have this chance to talk to you. Thank you so much for making the time and space for this. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you today and everyone. I'm very excited to be here. Now, in learning about you and your work, one of the things I learned is that you co-wrote two previous books with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the great psychiatrist known for her five stages of the dying process. And I wanted to start and understand how you and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross first got connected. Sure. So I started out, I had a mother who died when I was a child and um, she died when I was 13 in a hospital at the same time she was dying. The hotel where we were, there was a shooting across the street at the hotel, it turned out to be one of the first mass shootings in the U.S. So obviously I was interested 
and death and dying. And when I was in community college at Sacramento, Sacramento City College, everyone was so excited about these two psychology classes. And the really popular one was human sexuality, human sexuality. And the second one was death and dying. And I'm like, that's the one I want to go to. So obviously I studied Elizabeth Kubler-Ross as everyone else did. Then years later, after I had worked in this field for a number of years, there was an international conference in Egypt on death and dying. And the keynote speaker was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She um, unfortunately had to cancel because it's when she had her stroke. And afterwards, I, you know, she was the major speaker. I was wallpaper. And I talked to the person afterwards who was putting on the event and said, you know, I, I got to talk to her or her family and I don't know how she is. And it's an awkward call to make. I don't know. How do I call her son? You know, when it spoke to, I don't know how to engage in illness and all that. And I said, well, I'll call and see how she's doing. And so she gave me the number. I called. Her son said, oh, here's her number. Call her. She's doing better. I called her. And she was lovely on the phone. She asked me how Egypt was. We talked. And then interestingly enough, at the end of that call, I said in my way, well, I hope someday, somehow we get to meet each other. And she said, how about Tuesday? And that was my first glimpse of this is a woman who doesn't, maybe we'll get connected. She makes things happen. And so I went to her house on a Tuesday and um, she's just a fascinating woman. Her, She was the kind of person that her honesty, you either admired it or it pissed you off. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I remember she said to me when I walked in, she goes, let me smell you. <laughs> and I thought, oh my gosh, do I have cologne on? What's wrong? And she said... I just want to smell if you're a phony baloney or you're real. I love it. I love it. That was like, okay, I'm I'm going on a ride here. Mm -hmm. I'm going on a ride. And we became good friends. And, you know, going back to your first comment about her stages of dying, she helped me with my first book. She couldn't keep her hands off of it. And she made sure I was, you know, dotting my eyes and doing it right and covering everything. And we had this discussion for a long time about learning about life from death. And that became our book, Life Lessons. And then we would also have this ongoing conversation about how people were adapting her stages of dying for stages of grief. And they actually weren't adapting them well. And so I always said, you should write something, you should change it, you should put your voice out there at some point. And finally, one day, like I think 10 years, eight or nine years later, she called me and she said, okay, let's write about it. And so we formally adapted her stages of dying for stages of grief. And that became our book on grief and grieving. And literally on page one, we say, they're not linear. You don't have to go through them. There is no one model of grief. Grief is an organic process. There's no map for grief. And it was really, it turned out to be her last book. And literally, we finished it a week before she died. 
Wow. Now, you know, David, I have to tell you, I'm sort of jumping out of my skin, believe it or not, because there's so much I want to cover with you. But I want to clarify right here at the beginning something, because I've heard from people a criticism of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's work. I, when you say your name, often this criticism comes up immediately and people say, oh, those were based on interviews with terminally ill people. Don't apply it to the grieving process. That's an error. So can you address that right here out of the gate? Sure, absolutely. First of all, she's very clear. These were observations of dying, of people who were dying. And what I think was so profound about her work is Elizabeth didn't invent something. It's like she went outside and said, I noticed the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. I noticed this is what dying people go through. And she says in her first, first book on death and dying, this is also what people in grief often experience. And she's so clear. And if you read the original book, there's actually more than five stages. And she got the idea of the stages and how we go through them archetypally from Anna Freud. Huh. And so it's really interesting to just notice, you know, whether you like the model or don't like the model, there, you know, we go through the, I can't believe this is happening. We get angry. We go, what if? We get sad. I mean, they do naturally reoccur. But a couple of things. Elizabeth herself was so, um, it was hard for her to have her work, all of her books, I think, you know, how many books? In the 20s, maybe 30s books, lectures, they kept getting reduced to five words. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she said to folks, there's more to death and dying than these five words. So when people say, oh, she denied her own work, it's like, you know, I would sit with her and here's what would happen. A clinician would come in and the clinician would say, I want to tell you about this case. And they would tell her about the case and we'd sit through 20 minutes of background and then the clinician would say to Elizabeth, what stage are they in? And Elizabeth would go, forget the stages, just meet them where they are. Now, as you mentioned, there's been criticisms. We tried to address that in, like I said, page one of the book. Um, and we say all of those criticisms on page one. And Elizabeth found it ridiculous that people thought there's one model for grief. She found that concept ridiculous that people thought she was putting out the one and only model. And the truth is, as you know, the media picked up the five stages early on in Life Magazine and other places. And, you know, it's easy to talk about the five easy steps, the five this. Sure. I think we know grief can't be reduced to five easy anything. So I think that's important. I'm glad you went back and noted that. And, you know, look, Yale and other places have done, you know, a lot of studies. They don't think it's denial. They think it's disbelief. And, you know, I look at that and I go, tomatoes, tomatoes, sure. disbelief, denial. Sure. And, you know, things like that. Denial, she certainly never meant. And if anyone reads the books, they see this. She never meant there's an actual denial of death. She meant that. I can't believe this. Yeah. I can't believe yeah. this is happening. Yeah. Now, I wanted to start with this conversation in a foundational kind of way, because what I really want to go deeply into is your book on finding meaning 
the subtitle of which is the sixth stage of grief. Tell me how you came to see that meaning was something that we need to address directly, head on, beyond the five stages that the media had been holding up as important to the grieving process. Sure. So to connect the dots on that, acceptance over the years had a finality to it that Elizabeth and I never intended. There's no end to grieving. When people say to me, how long will my wife grieve, my spouse, my partner, my parent, my you know sibling, whoever it may be, when they say, how long will they grieve? I always say, how long will the person be dead? Because if they're going to be dead for a long time, you're going to grieve for a long time. Hopefully not always with pain, but more with love. So this idea of acceptance is sort of the end of grief is with, you know, nothing we ever believed. So I was so curious about meaning and obviously had studied Viktor Frankl's work. And I love that idea of how do you find the light in the darkness? And it's fascinating to me when many times bereaved parents would hear about meaning, they would say, yeah, but Viktor Frankl lived and my child died. And so I was curious about how do we put meaning and grief together? And I wrote a couple of chapters about it. And as you know, sometimes when you write, you put things aside, you wrote them, you'll look at them later and see what you think. So I wrote these chapters. Then at a certain point, I got a call five years ago out of the blue that my younger son, David, had died. You know, the pain was so intense. I wanted to write a note to every parent I had ever counseled saying, I'm sorry, I didn't realize how bad the pain was. And I canceled all my lectures, everything. And I came home and I had to do all the things I had told people to do. And, you know, I wondered if everything I had said would be true. Had I been given sure. the right advice all these years? Sure. And I had to go to a, a counselor, a grief counselor. You know, my my grief needed dedicated time. I, I said, you know, my pain was big enough that no one person in my life could handle it. I needed to spread it around and I needed a grief counselor. And I also went to grief groups and literally I had to walk in, took my contacts out, put glasses on, put my cap on, and I had to sit in a grief group with literally my books on a table four feet away. And as much as I wanted to be the grief expert, I had to be the father that had buried a child. And one day at this very desk I'm sitting at now, I literally was sitting at home in pain, wondering what to do. And I picked up these couple of chapters on meaning and I looked at them and I threw them down and I went, yeah, like that's going to help with this pain. Then I went back about a week later and I started reading them. And it did not take away the pain, but it gave the pain a cushion. And I became curious, how does meaning relate to grief in a deeper way? And I began talking to people who had had children who died, spouses who died about meaning, horrible tragedies. How did they find meaning? How did people find meaning after trauma and abuse and death? in all these situations. 
And he began hearing their stories. And I, I thought, this is a book. And so I began writing it. And it was such a powerful experience. And it also, I just couldn't help but take a few moments and in the beginning also address some of the misconceptions about Kubler-Ross's work. Because I was curious, how, am I going to notice going through these stages? Do they still work? And of course, there would be days I'm like, yep, I'm in anger. Yep, I'm in bargaining. There I am. But, you know, as I dance with acceptance, I couldn't stop there. I needed more. And that was meaning. And someone said, well, that's the sixth stage. And I was so shocked. The Kubler-Ross family has just been wonderful to me over the years. They gave me permission to add a sixth stage to her iconic stages. So, you know, the book just, I, I literally, when I finished it right here, I burst into tears and my prayer was, I hope it helps other people as much as it helped me. Can you share with me a bit uh, about your own journey of meaning making with the loss of your 21 year old son? Sure. There's a, a, a few things writing the book for me sure. about making meaning. And, you know, one thing I always want to say to people up front that I think is confusing when you see the title Finding Meaning, people go, I'm not there. And I go, oh, 95% of the book is about excavating the pain to find the meaning. So it's not, here's the meaning, it's how to get there through the pain. But one of the big things I, I had to learn in meaning making was that it's not about the death. There is no, there is no meaning in the horrible death or a cancer death or a pandemic death or, or however people die or a murder or a tragedy or trauma. Meaning is in us. Meaning is what we do afterwards. And so there's a number of things that were meaningful for me. One, my son, when he was in kindergarten, they um, gave out trophies to everyone. And he got the trophy for the most likely to become a helper. Hmm. And he toyed in his young life with whether it was medical school or nursing school, or he was becoming a, um, a, a paramedic. And he never got to be that helper. And I hope now with this book, he gets to help people throughout the world. That's part of my meaning that, you know, and this book is about the death of a child, but also the death of a parent, the death of a spouse, the death of a sibling, you know, the death of our parents. It's It really helps people in all walks of life. Even with trauma, I always say, you know, all grief does not have trauma, but all trauma has grief. So part of the work itself is my meaning mm -hmm. and getting to talk to him today. You know, today he comes alive with you in this podcast. He gets to be with me. That's meaningful. And, you know, think people think sometimes about meaning as I'm going to start a foundation or maybe I have to write a book, but you know, it's also small, meaningful moments. Like, and to name them, this is a meaningful moment you and I are having. Yeah. Now, I want to uh, read, David, a quote from your book, Finding Meaning, and then uh, we can talk about it together. It's a beautiful quote. You write, people often think there's no way to heal 
from severe loss. I believe that's not true. You heal when you can remember those who have died with more love than pain. When you find a way to create meaning in your own life in a way that will honor theirs, it requires a decision and a desire to do this, but finding meaning is not extraordinary. It's ordinary. It happens all the time, all over the world. And there are two parts of this that I want to pull out and have you comment on. One is, I believe that it's not true. You can heal from severe loss. You heal when you can remember those who have died with more love than pain. That was the first point I wanted to talk about. How can you help people make that shift? Right now they're listening and they say, right now I have more pain. The pain is bigger. So first of all, you know, I often talk about the stories in our mind. You know, people hear the word healing and they sometimes think healing means forgetting. And it does not mean forgetting. Healing is when the loss, the trauma, the damage no longer controls you. And this idea that there is a small voice in us that sometimes whispers, you know, life can continue. And then there's often a louder voice, sometimes our old wounds that go, no, life is over. It's done. You're stuck and you're never getting out of this. And I always say, you know, whether we talk about it as our ego or our old wounds, you know, it always speaks loudest and it speaks first. And so I remember maybe a month or two after my son had died, a friend, Diane Gray, called me and she said, I know you're drowning and you will be drowning for a long time. And at some point you will hit bottom. And when you hit bottom, you will have a decision to make. Do you stay there or do you swim again? And I think we all have that decision. Most of us do it unconsciously. Do we live again after loss? Is there life after loss? Is there life after trauma? Sometimes when I would work with people, I would ask if I could put my hand on their wrist and I would feel their pulse and I would go, your life is continuing, whether you think so or not. Do you want to just be alive or do you want to really live? And live a life that doesn't dishonor our loved one, but actually honors them. You know, my life every day honors my son. It keeps him alive. I, I, you know, someone wrote to me, and you can understand this. You actually talked about this. We chatted beforehand. After I started lecturing again, I was doing in-person lectures, and there was a brochure that went out, and someone, a number of people wrote in and said, David's smiling in his picture. You know, first of all, he's a grief expert. And second of all, I happen to know his son died. He should not be smiling in a picture. And I thought about that and I thought, first of all, number one, do, do we want our grief experts to look like they're, they're at the end themselves and they, you know, can't find their own smile? And two, I always tell people, what you think about my grief is none of your business. You know, my son loved my smile. 
my son would want me to smile. What you think of my smile is just like none of your business. So, you know, we have to get rid of those old images of living again is disloyal. It's not true. Mm -hmm. Now, just to um, clue our listeners in so you're not left out, before our conversation, I commented to David that I thought he had a beautiful smile. And he was like, oh, you know, uh, when I was young, uh, I was actually teased about that. And I said, oh, I'm commenting because I'm trying to develop and let bloom a natural smile in me. That's not fake at all. And so I've been looking at smiles that I love that seem really heart connected. So that's it. And yeah. And I love and your I comment. I want you to know, as I look at you, Tammy, yeah. I see a sweet smile in this moment. Oh, good. It's wonderful. And it's a very heart-connected one. So yeah, it's good. You've achieved that. <laughs> but the, the thing I want to underscore in the quote, and you brought it out too, was this word decision, this decision to live and participate in life and how this requires us to step into it, to say yes to this decision. It was a very, very powerful part of your book, Finding Meaning for Me, because I thought to myself, gosh, you know, a lot of us, even if we aren't in the midst of something we would identify as a grief journey, are kind of not really deciding that we want to be alive. We're like, yeah, I guess I guess this is happening. <laughs> this, this life thing's kind of happening, but we're not deciding to live. And so I want to understand more about that and this decision, how you made this decision, how you help other people who find themselves in that sort of vague place of, I don't know, maybe, question mark, do I have to? You know, horrible things happen to us in our life. People have suffered severe abuse, rape, emotional abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, death, loss, tragedy. And we often don't sort of know how to find our way out of the darkness. And I think that decision, and you know, sometimes it looks like I don't know how to live again, but I'm willing. And it also requires a bit of taking back our power that, you know, I don't want this perpetrator or this person who created this trauma to have power over me. So I want to make a decision to find life beyond that. And it does start with that decision. And, you know, once you make the decision, everything unlike it will come up in its path and you'll have to sort of wrestle with that. Um, and a lot of times what happens is our old wounds come up and we feel like there's no way to live again. And I think that's why it's so important. We talk about meaning and we, we have voices and I hope I'm one of those voices that says, no matter what you've been through, I'm not diminishing it in any way. This loss is brutal. The death of my son, the trauma people go through is brutal. There's no negating or pouring pink paint on it, but there is a life beyond it that we deserve to find. And just to unpack that a little bit more, you know, there was a time in our society where you wore black for a year when someone died. And there was a distinctive moment that 
you could choose to continue wearing black at a year, but you were also, you know, people when women were talking about taking the widow's weeds off, that there was a moment that you were told you have done your year. It doesn't mean the grief is over, but you have permission to live again. There is no moment in our society now that we say the grief will always be there because the grief is the love. But you do have permission to live again. And I think that's a little bit of what that decision is about, giving ourselves permission to live after loss and trauma. Now, you mentioned that you found it very meaningful. It made a lot of meaning for you to write the book on the sixth stage of grief, and you were able to share your experience of David's death. You also talk about how writing and whether it's writing or just telling stories is a powerful part of meaning making. You write meaning both begins and ends with the stories that we tell. And I'm wondering now for that person who's telling a story, they've been telling the same story over and over, and it's not necessarily generating a whole lot of meaning for them, the way they're telling the story. In fact, they're just telling the story, they've heard it over and over, and it just hurts. How can they reframe their story so that it's a meaning generating story? Yeah, that's a complex, you, you've said a lot in that question. So first of all, you know, we have to tell our stories. Our stories are important. We, we are our stories. They're, they're the essence of us. We want people to know our loved one's life mattered. What happened to us mattered. This death mattered. So we need to tell our stories. We have a society that's very grief illiterate that often says, don't tell your stories. You know, we heard it. Be quiet now. So we often don't have enough permission to tell our stories. Now, as you also said, it's interesting. There can come a time that we get stuck in our story. Now, here's the thing about grief. Grief must be witnessed. We need our grief witnessed. We, we're not meant to be islands of grief. We need others to witness our grief. I have an online group that I do. And in the online group, we have a check-in Monday. And one of the things that's interesting that I have people do is we have to learn to actually be in this moment. We all know, oh, be in the now, be in the moment. It sounds great. But we actually don't know how to do it. So we say to one another, how are you today? And we actually have to find our feelings. And what happens is when you say to people in grief, how are you today? They'll go, oh my gosh, I just, you know, I keep going over again. Five years ago, my son died. And we immediately go into the past and the story. And we don't know how to find ourselves in this moment. Now, the reason why that's so important is, as you mentioned, some of us get stuck in the story and we're repeating it constantly and it becomes this ruminating thought. We think we actually need the story and the details witnessed. We actually don't need that the phone rang at 4 p.m. witnessed. We need the feelings in the story witnessed. And that's why being in the now is so important for us to find those feelings in this moment 
and have the feelings of the story witnessed as much as the details. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's very helpful. Thank you for untangling that. Now, you mentioned that our society is grief illiterate. And yeah, I think that's true. And so I have a couple questions about this. One is, what would a grief literate society look like in your view? We would talk about our loved ones. We would include them. We would not make them a downer to talk about. They would remain alive. And, you know, I mentioned the idea of grief must be witnessed. When I was touring Australia a few years ago, there was a researcher who told me how she researches these small villages. And they said, the night someone dies in this village, everyone in their home has to move something or in their yard, move something. And the researcher said, why the night of the death do you have to move something? And they said, because the next day when the family wakes up, we want them to understand now that their loved one has died, everything has changed. In our society, your loved one has died and we treat it like, yep, you got three days, what else is new? And it isn't that easy. And so if we could talk about it more, you know, in the book, I ended up researching buffaloes. I never thought I would research buffaloes in my life. And buffaloes, when they sense a storm coming, they run into the storm, minimizing the time they're in the discomfort. We, on the other hand, we want to keep the pain of grief a mile behind us our whole life instead of engaging with it. So a grief illiterate society would engage, you know, this idea of what we avoid pursues us, what we face transforms us. Now, in describing a grief literate society, we would talk about our loved ones. You said they would remain alive. And I thought, now that's really interesting. What does that mean? I try to do it. L listen, I just went to um, uh, my goddaughter's wedding, uh, Marianne Williamson's daughter's wedding, and I was to give a toast. And it was very important to me that David be there. Now, I'm at a wedding, so I don't want to go into my grief in a wedding. It's a happy moment. But my older son, who lives in Arizona, was actually unable to make it. So I did in my toast start with, I know both my sons would physically want to be here today, but they're unable to, but I bring them here both in spirit. And it was a way for everyone at the wedding to know who knew that my son had died, that I was bringing him. And other people just thought David's two sons couldn't make it. But I brought him here. I brought him. You know, I don't. I don't leave the dead behind. A lot of times when I do trauma work with people, so many times we try to get the person out of the traumatic moment and we leave our loved ones in the trauma. And I'm like, no, you got to go back and get your loved ones out of the trauma too. So when we get our loved ones out of the trauma and out of the death, then they can move forward with us in life. Yeah, there's a lot more about that particular topic that I want to circle back to in a moment, but I want to ask you one more question about grief illiteracy and grief literacy by contrast. 
I notice I feel somewhat grief illiterate when I'm encountering someone or calling someone on the phone or writing someone a note who's suffered a serious loss. And, you know, I could say, you know, I'm so sorry for your loss. And I remember, though, when a being close to me happened to be a four-legged being died, 17-year-old, deep best friend. And I got probably about 100 cards that all said, I'm so sorry for your loss. And by the time I got like the 99th card, I just tore it up. I was like, everyone's sorry for my loss. They all took the same Hallmark line and sent me a card. Like none of it was penetrating, even though part of me appreciated that they wrote. Another part of me was like, so help people who, like me, who aren't quite sure I want to say something helpful, benevolent. I want to reach this person's heart. I don't know what they're going through right now. It's it's beyond my capacity potentially to know. How can I be literate in the face of someone's loss? So first, I have to start with your four-legged being. Tell me your four-legged being's name. Jasmine. Jasmine, because I always want to name the loss They're not, you know, it's easy for us to talk about, I had this loss or that loss, but it's Jasmine. And I think about pet loss, I always say, if the love is real, the grief is real. So as we look at that idea of what to say, I also take it now, it's so sad to me when you look on people's Facebooks after they've had a loss or their Instagram, And you see, so sorry for your loss, thoughts and prayers. And it's like, I get that same feeling you had, like thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And it's like, enough with the thoughts and prayers. Is anyone going to pick up the phone and call them? Mm -hmm. So I think it is a little bit more of taking action. And I think it's okay to say, I don't know what the right words are, but I'm here. Can I stop by? Can we have coffee? I'm 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 going to be in your neighborhood. I'm dropping something by. I think we've gotten lost in the words are enough. And I think we need to find more actions. So a grief literate society to me would have less words and more action. It would be showing up and being with that person or walking with them. Now you're an expert at this being with people uh, when they're really grieving. For those of us who aren't experts, and in fact feel more like we're approaching this at the beginner level, what are the capacities or the inner posture, attitude we need to cultivate so that we can take that action? And we're like, I can do it. I can go have coffee and hold space for this person. So the first thing to normalize is it's okay that you don't know. My, my website's grief.com and the most visited page on it is the best and the worst things to say to people in grief because we don't know. And we make the mistake of thinking, oh, if I don't know the right words, I should say nothing. And that is a mistake. The second piece you want to know is that the person is not broken So release that feeling inside of you that it's your job to fix them or make them feel better. Your job is to show up and sit with them in the pain. And that might be really hard for you. Now, I I teach people in grief, you know, look, there is your friend 
that always went deep with you in your conversations. And there's your other friend that was your tennis friend or your bridge playing friend. Their gift was they played great bridge with you. Their gift was they played great tennis with you. Don't expect the tennis player who you never had a meaningful talk with them in your life to be the most meaningful person all of a sudden. Sometimes we have friends that their gift is activity. Sometimes we have friends that their gift is going deep with us. Don't confuse the two. So, you know, if you are the tennis player, to say to them, listen, I'm here. I love you. I don't know when you're ready to play tennis, but I'm ready and willing whenever you are. And, you know, I'm stopping by to say hello. And to just allow yourself maybe even to be in the awkwardness of you don't know what to say and make that be okay. Okay. And just before we move uh, off this topic, what are the few things that are clearly in the don't do this column? We bright side people. You know, the other person I was privileged to work with and a good friend of mine for decades is Louise Hay. And we wrote a book together, You Can Heal Your Heart. And, you know, Louise was the queen of positivity, but she was also clear on, you know, we don't want to have toxic positivity. You don't want to bright side people. You don't want to, I always tell people, don't start any sentences with the word at least. At least they died quick. At least they're not sick anymore. Because you're not witnessing the pain. You're telling people to skip around it. So it's really to just be and not, it goes back to the, there's no fixing. This is just a horrible situation. To say it's a horrible situation, there's no words. I can't fix this. And I love you and I'm here with you. And don't try to find the good in it because the person has to find their good and their meaning in their own time, but they got to walk through the dark night first. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want to um, track back to our conversation about having an evolving relationship with the person who's died, not leaving them behind in some way. This was so powerful to me, David, in your book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. This notion that our relationship with the person who's died can potentially keep evolving. And I want to understand more about that. And to begin, address the person who says, look, so-and-so died. They're dead. How could that relationship keep evolving? They're gone. Well, psychologically, there was even a blip when we thought there should be closure and an ending of the relationship with the person who died. And immediately we saw that was not the case, that it is important to have what's called continuing bonds and that the relationship continues. And I always say, don't give death any more power than it already has. You know, Death has the power to take our loved ones physically, but it doesn't have the power to end our relationship and it doesn't have the power to end our love. You know, there is a saying, uh, grief is love with no place to go. And I understand the saying at the same time, I send my son love every day. I don't quit loving him just because he's dead. I still parent him in my heart. I still love my parents. I wonder what would be like if I could talk to my mother in this moment 
or my nephew in this moment, or my son in this moment. And sometimes I'll have conversations with them. And there's people listening who maybe the end did not come well. Maybe, you know, they had a tough time. Maybe their wounded self, both people were wounded and speaking from their wounds. And so I'll often tell people, you know, your loved one has died, and I bet that's matured you and helped you evolve. Can you imagine that your loved one, if they spoke from their wound, wherever they're at now, they're evolving and maturing probably more than we are. And so can we give them the grace to know we're both still changing and evolving and try to have more evolved conversations as we can? Now, let me ask you a, a question about this. Let's say someone says, you know, yeah, I'm having an ongoing relationship with this person who died, and I fear it's all in my head. I'm making it up. I'm making up this evolving relationship. I, you know, maybe on Monday and Wednesdays, I believe it's actually happening, but the rest of the days of the week, I think it's just a fiction inside my brain. I would say, what does it matter? What does it matter? You know, look, he, let me tell you, this kind of relates to what I think about the afterlife. To me, there's three options for the afterlife. This is just my belief. Option one, our loved ones have gone to the afterlife, heaven, whatever you may believe. Option one, they know what's going on with us. They know what I'm doing every day. My son, my parents are keeping up with me. That's option one. If that's true, I want this, them to see me grieving fully and eventually living fully. Option two is they died and they're in a place where they've got bigger fish to fry than what I'm doing. They've got interesting things in the cosmos that I can't even begin to understand. They don't have any idea what's happening on earth. In that case, I want to grieve fully and live fully. The third option is the atheist view. When you die, there's nothingness, your consciousness ends, and your story is over. If that option is true, then at some point, my story will end and my consciousness will end. So I want to make sure while I'm here, I grieve fully and live fully. So no matter which it is, it comes back to grieving fully, living fully. And if that includes a relationship for me with my loved one that's meaningful, it only has to be meaningful to me. Whether it's meaningful to someone else is kind of irrelevant. I get meaning out of continuing a relationship with my son, with my parents. I don't have any illusions. No one's sitting in a chair next to me. No one's in the kitchen cooking or picking me up at noon who's dead. I have no illusions, but I have a heart connection that lives beyond death. Mm -hmm. So those three options, I like that. It's all very uh, logical and makes sense to me in, in a sort of analytical way of looking at things. But it seems pretty clear, David, that you, in your own experience, and this is yours, believe that there is continuity after. I and I'd be curious to know uh, what gives you that confidence. Well, a couple of things. I did research years ago from my work in end-of-life care. Uh, I wrote a book about the research called Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms and what you see before you die. And it was about deathbed visions that we have when we're dying, how our loved ones come to greet us. And the stories were just remarkable and consistent 
despite your religion, despite where on this planet you were. And it seems that there's something that happens at the end of life that that veil comes down and our loved ones greet us. And it's so powerful. And I just saw it. And, you know, in the book, um, I made sure I interviewed because I wanted it to stand up credibly. I interviewed doctors, nurses, paramedics, psychologists, priests, rabbis, ministers, that I wanted their experience of the dead coming back to greet the dying at the end of life. So that really gave me a sense that something happens. And you know what? If if decades in the future, long after I'm dead, my older son is on his deathbed, I'm going to come and greet him. So it's such an amazing phenomenon. That really gave me a grounded sense that something is there. Something is there. So the, the notion, vision trips, crowded rooms, the crowded room part is that there are beings that have already passed over that are crowding the room. Yeah, to three phenomenons that people have as they have visions of their loved one coming to greet them. Um, and uh, they have a sense of they're going on a journey, a trip. Even the word hospice comes from an old Latin word that means a way station where you rest before your final journey. You know, people will have imagery of, you know, death is really the trip of a lifetime. And they'll talk about crowds of people. They'll say, who were all the people visiting last night? And we write it off as hallucinations. And in the book, I tease out scientifically the difference between hallucinations and deathbed visions and how they're very different experiences. So those really helped me. And, and I'll tell you, my own father, when he was dying, was so sad and depressed and hopeless. And then maybe a day before he died, he shifted. And I said, Dad, what happened? And he said, I realize I'm going to a place where your mother already is and that I'm going to see her again and we're going to see you again, even though we're gone. And I just saw, and my father was the biggest skeptic in the world. So there is something that happened. He said, she came to me. So it's powerful. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I want to um, just understand a bit more of this statement you made that let's not give death more than it's already taking from us. Death doesn't need to be the end of our relationship with this being, this person. Uh, to that listener who says, wow, I actually was living as if death had ended a huge part, at least, of the relationship. Maybe I kept the love in my heart, but I, I didn't feel I was in relationship any longer with this person. What would you say? They're like, oh, I want to be in relation. I want to see what kind of relationship can we be in? How would you help someone open to that and start discovering things about that? Well, I think the first thing is to realize the stories we have either as a society that we've believed in our own mind that it's over. It's over. And I don't think it's over. It continues. And to release the story in your mind that the relationship did have to end, to release that story and just be like, look, I don't know what that looks like. And I'm not someone who gets a million signs from my son. I'm not someone who I don't feel like I'm, you know, 
seeing things all the time or visions or whatever, but do I have a sense in my heart that our relationship continues and my love continues? Absolutely. And I remind people, you know, we don't have a broken mind. We have a broken heart. And if we can come from our heart and let the love continue, you know, when people say, I miss them, I'll say, miss them then. I love them, love them then. Continue. Mm -hmm. How has your relationship with your mom, you mentioned that she died when you were just 13. How has that evolved over time? How would you describe your relationship with your mom now? Well, you know, there were times I would go, when my son was alive, wow, mom, you, you, you never got to meet my kids. I wonder what kind of grandmother you would be. And then sometimes I imagine, you know, oh, she would be like this and she would think of this. And, you know, I'm not hearing her voice talk to me. I'm not saying that, although people do feel like they get a sense sometimes of a loved one saying something to them. Uh, and then when my son died, I'm like, well, mom, you physically are meeting him now. You physically are together. Mom, I hope you were there to, to meet him and take him in and make sure he's okay. Mm-hmm. Have you felt any uh, ongoing relationship with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and your work in publishing now the sixth stage of grief? You know, I have dreams about her. And, you know, I don't know when we have these dreams, if it's just a dream or it's them visiting. I mean, I think nighttime is a time that our beliefs go down and we're more open to connections. So she certainly lives in my dreams. Mm -hmm. And I certainly feel her in my work. Sometimes I like get voices of Elizabeth saying, oh, ask them about this or tell them about that. Mm -hmm. Now you write in Finding Meaning, uh, something that I found very beautiful. You write, we often believe that our grief will grow smaller in time. It doesn't. We must grow bigger thought that was gorgeous. Uh, I do think people are like, I just God, my grief will grow smaller in time. So uh, tell me instead what it means to grow bigger. You know, I think that um, uh, the grief is the love. So I don't want it to get smaller. Um, and I don't want to get rid of it. It's part of who I am. And I want to accept all the parts of me. The good, the bad, the ugly, I want to accept all the parts of me. And so my goal is to grow around the grief. And the story that I told in the book was when I was in Germany lecturing, I went to Hamburg. And I had been to all these European cities, and they're all so old and gorgeous. I live in Los Angeles, where an old building here is 1949. And then you go to a place like Germany and Europe, and you see buildings from, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And I get to Hamburg and it's this brand new city. And I was a little illiterate in my history. And I said, why is Hamburg so new? And they said, oh, it's because, you know, the Americans and the British bombed us in World War II. And they said, you need to go to St. Nikolai. So I went to St. Nikolai, which is this beautiful church in the center of uh, Hamburg, Germany. And this whole city has been so gorgeously rebuilt. And here sits this church completely bombed. 
It's never been rebuilt. It stands there ruined. But there's something about it being there in the heart of this new city. And it really makes me think how our transformation is in the ruins. And, you know, the death of my son is a little bit like that church, that there is a part of my heart that will forever be devastated and in ruins around his death. And it doesn't mean just like that city, I can't grow a huge full life around that wound. And to transform it from my traumatic wound to my cherished wound. And I think we all have the ability to do that. Very, very beautiful statement to transform it from our traumatic wound to our cherished wound. I've been speaking with David Kessler, beautiful human, beautiful writer. He's the author of the book, Finding Meaning, The Sixth Stage of Grief. And I can feel you mentioned your sons in the book as a helper, that this book will be a healing agent, a helping agent for people. And that is definitely happening. It's on, David. Thank you so much. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world.